Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter here on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. On previous episodes of Faster Please, the podcast, and in my newsletter essays, I've argued for the importance of optimistic science fiction. But what exactly qualifies as future optimistic fiction? And how is it different from utopian literature? To discuss one of my favorite science fiction books and TV series, The Expanse, and to consider the importance of what fiction tells us about the future, I brought in Peter Suderman. Peter is features editor at Reason Magazine. He's written a number of fantastic pieces on science fiction, including The Fractal Fractious Politics of the Expanse in the December 2022 issue of Reason. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. French film director Francois Truffaut famously claimed it was impossible to make an anti-war film. He said, I find that violence is very ambiguous in movies. For example, some films claim to be anti-war, but I don't think I've really seen an anti-war film. Every film about war ends up being pro-war. And that quote, which is sort of always stuck in my head, sort of reemerged in my brain when I came across a, a somewhat similar observation uh, from Jurassic Park author Michael Crichton, who said, futuristic science fiction tends to be pessimistic. If you imagine a future that's wonderful, you don't have a story. And I think... Some people may interpret that as meaning you cannot write optimistic science fiction. And I think uh, a show that you have written a, a long essay about, and I, I've written a, a about not as intelligently, but I've written about it from time to time, is the TV show The Expanse. And I find The Expanse to be an optimistic, optimistic sci-fi takes place in the future, several couple hundred years in the future. Humanity has spread out to uh, Mars and the asteroid belts, uh, and there's some there's certainly conflict. But I, as an Expanse fan, someone who just wrote an essay on it, do you would you agree that is optimistic science fiction? So I think it is with some caveats. So the first one is that it's optimistic, but it's not utopian. And I think a lot of the I, the argument against optimistic uh, science fiction is actually not really arguing against optimism. It's arguing against utopianism and this idea, you know, that you sometimes see it's there's oh, there's hints of it sometimes in Star Trek, especially in Star Trek, the next generation of, oh, in the future, we'll, you know, humanity will have all of its problems solved, right? We won't have money. There will be no poverty, right? I mean, if you think about the... Uh, uh, the the earth of the of Star Trek the Next Generation's future it's actually it is kind of boring right there isn't a lot of conflict now writers eventually found ways to to drive conflict out of uh, conflicts between the Federation and other you know sort of planets and even within the Federation because of course they realized it, it, the utopian surface is just a surface and if you dig down at all beneath it of course humans would have conflict um, but I think a lot of the the opposition to or uh, to the idea of of uh, of optimistic science fiction just comes from this idea of well wouldn't it be utopian and what the expanse does is it tells a story that is i think inherently optimistic but really deeply not utopian because it recognizes that progress 
is not uh, an easy, straight, linear line in which everybody sort of comes together and holds hands and there's a rainbow and, you know, uh, you know, what my little ponies and like everybody just sort of sings and it's wonderful. That's not how it works. In fact, the way that progress happens is that people have things they want in their lives and then they seek either on their own or in coalitions, factions, organizations, whether that's government, whether that's private sector, whether that's unions, whatever it is, they organize somehow or another to get the thing that they want. And sometimes they build things. Sometimes they build uh, habitats. And so this is something you see a lot of in, in The Expanse, is that humans have colonized the um, the solar system as the, the story begins. And there are just all of these fascinating habitats that humans have built. Some of those habitats, you know, they actually have problems with them. There are air, air filtration issues where you have to like, constantly be supplying ice from, you know, asteroid mining, that sort of thing. Uh, some of the main characters, when we first meet them, are working as ice haulers because, of course, you would have to have some sort of trade of uh, important resources in space in order for, to make these habitats work. And you could call this you could call this sort of, oh, that's not optimistic. In fact, a lot of these lives are sort of grubby and unpleasant and people don't get everything they want. But I think that misunderstands the idea of progress, because the idea of progress isn't that suddenly everything will be happy and my little ponyish. Right. It's not my little pony. It's it's actually it's it's conflict and it's clashing desires of uh, and it's clashing ideals about how humans should live and then it's people kind of working that stuff out amongst themselves day by day hour by hour through through coalitions through organizations through institutions through technology through politics sometimes and all of those sort of tools and all of those organizational forms have a role. Sometimes they also have drawbacks. All of them have drawbacks in, you know, to some extent. And then it's it's just a matter of how are people going to work out the problems they have at the moment uh, in order to get to the next place, in order to get to the in order to build the thing they want to build, in order to start the society they want to have. It's it's a it's a six season TV show plus uh, based on a nine novel series the six season TV show adapts the first six books and then there's three additional books plus there's a bunch of uh, short stories novellas sort of in, uh, interstitial material but there's this moment that happens in both the TV show and in the books that's really important and it's about it, when humanity finds a way to other solar systems and so there's 1300 gates that open up and they can sort of go out and colonize the rest of the rest of space and what happens is each one of these colonies sort of uh, all, all these colonies are, are are sort of settled and each one of them takes on an idea and a culture and a sort of um, often technological capability. Right. So there's one of them that's really funny uh, that you meet uh, called Freehold. And it's frankly, it's a bunch of anarchist libertarian gun nuts who decide to basically ignore all the rules that the trade union that is managing a lot of the trade between the gates uh, has put in place. And they are managing that trade for good reason, because if you if you mess with the gates, if you go through them the wrong way, it kills people, it kills ships, it destroys them. And so you have to go through in order and you have to go through slowly. And it's this whole, this whole sort of process. And Freehold, they're a bunch of difficult, crazy anarchist, like libertarian gun nuts who don't want to play by the rules. And at first, they're a problem. Like you can see where you're like why that would be a problem for a, the social organizational form that has come up in, in these books for managing the gates and making sure that they don't kill people. 
But later, when they're uh, uh, basically a, a sort of super powerful, high tech, um, imperial uh, planet that like has designs on controlling all of humanity and putting all of humanity under the thumb of basically one emperor who has plans to live forever, right? It's sort of this become a kind of uh, a god who is uh, ruling over all of humanity and then basically turn all of humans into like a hive mind, you know, the, but for the good of humanity so that we'll survive, right? When you have this, that, that all-encompassing, super-powerful collectivist impulse that is threatening uh, human civilization, turns out that the libertarian anarchist gun nuts at Freehold are actually pretty good friends to have. And so this this series does a bunch of interesting work of of like noting that yes, of course, those people can be difficult at times, and they can present problems to social cohesion. At the same time. You know, it's not bad to have it's not bad to have them as allies when you are threatened by an authoritarian menace. You've nailed it. Well done. I view it um, as as optimistic, but not utopian. I think that that's uh, that's a key point, as particularly compared to how the future is, I think, often portrayed. It's pretty I think it's pretty optimistic because um, no zombies uh, We're still around. And the world looks like it's doing okay. Um, there, was there climate change? Sure. Uh, but New York is surrounded by, by barriers. Uh, clearly, there's been disruption, but we sort of kept moving forward. Now we're this sort of multi-planetary civilization, so it doesn't look like we're going to get killed by an asteroid anytime soon. I think a, a big mistake that a lot of the pessimists about the future, just in politics and sort of our cultural culture generally, but... Um, in science fiction as well, a big mistake that they make is that they think only in terms of grand plants. And they think in terms of sort of mass systems of social control and social organization. And so when you see an apocalypse, it's all the governments have failed. And so has capitalism. When you see an apocalypse, it's uh, the, the oceans swallowed us because we used too much energy or the wrong kind of energy. And it and and that's it. It was the grand plan didn't work. And then and then we're in a hellscape after that. And what you see in the expanse and what makes makes it so smart is grand plans actually do fail. Almost any time somebody has a big sweeping theory of of, of how we're going to reorganize human social organization of how, you know, humanity is going to be totally different from now on. Almost any time that someone has that sort of theory in the expanse series it doesn't work out, and often that person is revealed to be a bad guy or at least somebody who has a bad way of thinking about the world. Instead, progress comes in fits and starts, and it's made uh, sort of on a, on a much smaller scale by these ad hoc coalitions of people who are constantly sort of changing their coalitions. Sometimes you want something that you uh, that it requires building something, that requires a new technology. And so you ally with people who are like engineer types. And you get the you work with them to build something and then you at the end of it you've got the the thing that they've built and your life is a little bit better or at least you've accomplished one of your goals. And then maybe after that, those people, the engineers, actually, it turns out that they that they are not they have a culture that is not cooperative with yours. And so you're going to ally with a different political faction uh, and the engineers are going to be on the other side of it. But they've still built the little thing that you needed them to build. Right. And it's just this this idea that like big systems 
don't and big plans that sort of assume that everything falls in line, those plans don't work and and they do fail. And if that's your idea of how we're going to make progress, that's a bad idea. The way we make progress is just sort of a Hayekian sense. It's just these all our individual wants and needs cannot be incorporated in this grand system or grand plan. Our wants and needs today, much less how those will evolve over time. Uh, also, you know, our future wants and needs don't fit into the plan either. Yeah, this is right. And I mean, this is one of the issues I have with a, a lot of zombie fiction is that it just sort of assumes that the, that after the zombie apocalypse, which, OK, the zombie apocalypse is not all that realistic. But you can imagine a scenario in which, like, there is something environmental that really goes very bad for humanity. Like, that's not that's not out of the realm of possibility. But what a lot of the zombie apocalypse fiction uh, assumes then is that in the decades or years afterwards, no one will really find ways to work with other people towards shared goals. Or at best, they'll do so in a really ugly and simplistic way where, you know, somebody sets up a society uh, that's walled off, but it's ruled by some evil authoritarian who's just like, and you've got you're living under this person's thumb. And it's like that. I I mean, have you ever I, I grew up in Florida. And so we had hurricanes. And one of the things you see when when you have hurricanes is that, yes, there is a government response and they send out trucks and power company you know, officials and all of that sort of thing. But people drive around the neighborhood with chainsaws and cut up the trees that have fallen across your uh, your driveway. And other people who may not have chainsaws go and help their friends move the stuff out of their bedroom where the tree fell into the bedroom you know, through the ceiling and like there's been some leakages. And it's just sort of people sort of working together in these informal coalitions, these these little neighborhood local groups to help each other out and to try and you know fix things that have that have broken and gone wrong. It is not it's not fun. It's it's often quite I mean, it's it's not like, oh, man, hurricanes, they're wonderful. We shouldn't worry about them at all. We should. And we should try to build resilience against them and, and that sort of thing. At the same time, when disaster strikes. Often what you see, not always, but often what you see is that people come back together and they survey the problems and they work to fix them minute by minute, hour by hour in little ways. And sometimes the first thing you do is, well, I got a hole in my roof. I'm going to stretch uh, garbage bags across it so that the next time it rains and then you got a, a hole in your roof with garbage bags across it for a couple of weeks. But that's that's a solution. For the time, it's better than a hole in your roof, right? And that, and like it's on the other hand, you got a hole in your roof, it sucks, right? But like that's progress relative to the to the hole that's there, right? And that, and like that's, I think a way that a lot of people who don't think about engineering, who don't think about sort of, uh, who who don't think in a Hayekian manner, um, it's something that they miss because they only think about big systems and big plans, and big systems and big plans do have big risks and they do often fail, but that's not how humans figure out how to how to how to how to move forward and how to make their lives better an interesting um aspect is that you mentioned like how these at some point you have these these gates open so we're we're no longer stuck in the solar system we can go to any of these other planetary systems and what's interesting is the devastating effect this has on the planet mars which is its own which is its own uh, own world, its own government. It has its own military. It's independent of Earth, but it's a society that was sort of built around one big idea, which is terraforming Mars. 
and creating a, a, a sustainable civilization. And when that goal didn't look important anymore, that was it. It, 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 fell, it fell apart. People left. There was no, it was no resilience. There was no ability to adapt. To me, that's one of the most interesting uh, twists I've seen in science fiction, which when the, when the grand plan fails, the whole, thing, the whole thing falls apart because they never assumed the grand plan would work. The Mars example is great because it shows uh, what I think is one of the biggest problems in political thinking and in kind of bad science fictional storytelling, which is that, it is, is that it's, it's a great demonstration of steady state thinking where people think that the current arrangement of power and resources is going to persist forever. And so Mars in the Expanse story was basically a competitor with Earth, which is which in the Expanse universe was the sort of political home of uh, of humanity as well as the breadbasket. It's where all the food was produced. And then the belt, which is the, the you know sort of the asteroid belt, which is a sort of the, the rough and tumble outer worlds. The, out, the, the outer worlds, they were sort of um, uh, they were the resource extractors, right? Like they they sort of provided for the inner systems um, often where sort of they kind of had a blue collar. You know, there was a, a, a vibe to them. They uh, there there were some terrorist activity that came out of this because they were resentful. Right. There's sort of some interesting kind of cultural and subcultural effects there. And then Mars was was Mars was heavily military and high tech. And they thought that that would be their competitive advantage. Almost almost a quasi-fascist state in a way. I mean, it was very, mil- it was very militaristic. Yes, which comes back to pay off uh, in a big way in the final three books of the, of the trilogy, which unfortunately the, the shows don't adapt, but are in some ways, I think, the, the best uh, of, of the books. And so much of our politics is built around that idea that, oh, this power structure this arrangement of resources that we have right now where everybody's on facebook is going to where everybody is on twitter where everybody uses google search that's going to last forever and the only way you can dislodge it is through government and through regulation and through you know sort of through uh, through interventions that are designed to break that sort of thing up i'm i'm thinking very specifically of antitrust uh and, and a lot of antitrust theory is predicated on this um but there's other realms in which this sort of approach to regulation and to politics uh ends up um because you know is quite common as well and in the expanse you see Guess what? Those those power structures, even power structures that have persisted in the case of the Expanse books, at least for decades, and I think for a couple of hundred years, that's basically been the arrangement uh, as we sort of enter the story. Even those arrangements that seem like they are immutable facts of human organization. Oh, this is how politics has always been. This is how the, the arrangement of, of national power effectively in, in this story has always been arranged. Those things can change and they can change because of environmental changes and they can and change because of technological developments that people don't foresee. It seems to me that like you had this period during the space race, the atomic age, 50s, 60s, in which there were, were a lot. There was lots of sort of somewhat optimistic science fiction. You could, you know, uh, uh, you obviously had Star Trek and even uh, I would say 2001 A Space Odyssey. You go to the Jetsons. But then, then you started not seeing that. And to me, it seems like a, there's a pretty sharp dividing line there, like in, by the late 60s, early 70s. And I've written about that. Am I making too much out of that, that there was a change or it's sort of it's always been like this? And 
maybe I, I'm just not, we started noticing it more because we started doing more science fiction. I don't think you're wrong to notice that. And I think there was a big change in the 1970s. I think maybe one place to start if you're thinking about that, though, is actually something like 100 years before the 1970s. That would be the 1870s. Um, yeah, in the, in the 1870s, in the 1890s, uh, maybe even a little bit before then. But something so this maybe tells you how naive I was as a seven or an eight year old. But I started reading science fiction when I was around eight years old. My parents were big fans. And I, of course, watched Star Trek, you know, even starting when I was four or five Star Wars, that sort of thing, um, like grew up in a real nerd household. And something that I that I heard when I was, I believe, in fourth grade that just blew my mind. But of course, is super obvious when you when you hear it is for a long time in human history, we didn't have science fiction. We didn't have it at all. And you go back to the 1700s to the 1800s. You start to see little bits of it. Jules Verne, even maybe some of the Edgar Allan Poe. But it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution and then some of the fiction that sort of came out, you know, sort of decades into the 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 Industrial Revolution. It wasn't until relatively recently in human history that people had the idea that the future would be different. Because that's the heart of, of what science fiction is. It is the idea that the future will be different because humans will organize themselves differently or be, and or because we will have invented new technologies that make our lives different. And you go back to a, a thousand you know, AD or twelve hundred or fifteen hundred even, you know, uh, and you you just don't see that idea present in fiction and storytelling because essentially no one imagined that the, the future would be different. They thought it would be the way it was in their time forever. And they assumed that it had basically been the same forever, that that humanity's social and technological and resource arrangements would be steady state. And something happened in the, you know, the 30s and 40s with the early science fiction that really predicated on on this idea that, oh, wait, the future will be different and it will be better. And then you get to the 1970s and things start to sort of look a little bit shaky in world affairs, especially in the, the Western world. Right. And and what happens is that that. That then is reflected in a lot of popular science fiction where you start to see this more pessimistic view, this idea that the future will be different, but it will be worse and it will be worse because all of the things we rely on for the present will fail. And, you know, look, I, I don't think that that's an illegitimate mode of storytelling in any way. And I, in fact, really like a lot of even as I've harangued against them, I, I, I like but I mean, those are all super enjoyable movies. I just wish there were like the other kind too. And it seems to me that maybe, maybe we're starting to get more of the, the other kind again. I, I, I don't know. I mean, we don't have a lot of examples. Yeah. So about 10 or 15 years ago, there was literally a movement in science fiction led by people like Neil Stevenson, uh, the author of uh, most prominently um, uh, uh, Cryptonomicon, The Diamond Age and Snow Crash in the 1990s, but also some more recent stuff as well. And it, where he was like, we need ideas about the future that are that are, if not utopian, then at least sort of optimistic, like I, like new the ideas about like things that we will do that will be better, not things that we will do that will make everything worse and that will that will sort of uh, contribute to suffering and to collapse. 
and Stevenson has been, you know, ha has been a, a leading proponent both of other writers doing that, but then of of doing it himself. And you know, if, uh, since we were talking about um, ad hoc coalitions and sort of a small scale problem solving, his novel Termination Shock, um, uh, I think from two years ago, it's a it's a novel, it's a quasi science fictional novel about um, global warming set in the near future, in which global warming has both become a real problem uh, and also one that people have started to find uh, a lot of small scale ways to not solve exactly, but to address on a personal level. And so when the novel begins, uh, there's a lot of houses on stilts in Texas because, you know, there's flooding issues. And but you know what they just took, picked up their houses and they put them on stilts and people have to wear these sort of dune like suits that cool them. Um, there are all these sort of crazy traveling caravans of, of, of people who who like live, at, you know, not in any particular place. But then there are these mega truck stops that have sprung up to meet their needs and sort of become these kind of travel hubs. And then, of course, people start trying to to not solve global warming exactly, but to mitigate global warming kind of locally by uh, shooting stuff into the air, right, that sort of blocks uh, reflections in the atmosphere. And like, of course, that causes some problems. Like, he's not just sort of like, yeah, we can just fix this. But he's like, well, you know, this sort of thing is how problems get solved. If they don't get solved through politics and through sort of grand, yeah, multilateral agreements. Uh, of course, I would point also point to another, uh, this was a novel, which is Seven Eves, which is a novel which things get about as dark for humanity as possible we're down we're down to seven people and but what we come all we come all the way back uh and beyond and it's all through distributed solutions right like the, there's a great bit of the, you know, so you, you the you get down to the final seven people and then you flash forward i think it's like 5000 years right there's a just a great like a section header in this book you're you're like 700 pages in to a 1000 page book and suddenly it just says 5,000 years later. Okay, okay, I guess, sure. Neil Stevenson, you can do that 5,000 years later. And you see that humanity is flourishing again because somehow or another, you have distributed rings, uh, uh, habitat systems, you know, uh, around the earth. You have the submarine people. We don't really know what they did, but the submarine people somehow or another figured it out. There's all that, you know, there's still like some earth dwellers who survived in caves, uh, like probably the Mars people who just like, took off for Mars in the middle of the, the catastrophe. We think they survived somehow too, but in like part of this is there's a kind of cheat in that book in which he doesn't tell you how all of these people survived. But there's also a kind of genius and a, and a truth in that, in that we don't know how it's going to go. But what we know is that when you, when put to the test, people have not not always. I don't want to say like it just it works 100 percent of the time, because sometimes there are true catastrophes in the world. But people, when put to the test, when said your survival, the survival of you, your family, your friends and and the future of uh, of your race is on the line. People have figured out ways to survive that their predecessors would never have imagined because they never had to. It's important that we have popular culture that gives us images of the future, you know, a variety of images to sort of shoot for? I think it's incredibly important. I think even people who think it's important underrate how important it is because most people, even the, the smartest, most innovative people, they're people are modelers. They kind of do things that they've seen done, even if it's that they've seen it in a story. 
And I just think about my own my own history in my own life. I grew up in a household where there wasn't, I would say, like a, a lot of sort of political ideology sort of being there. There was sort of it was in the background, but it, but my parents like didn't actually talk about politics that much. It was just that one of them was quite liberal and the other one was quite conservative. And there were differing radio programs that, that sort of like that I would hear in the company of one versus the other. But they were both, like I said, science fiction readers, and there was science fiction just all over our house. I started reading a, my the first adult science fiction novel I read was The Caves of Steel, which I was given uh, when I was in fourth grade, eight years old. And like Isaac Asimov's, you know, sort of Agatha Christie murder mystery in the future in a futuristic New York story. And I was totally hooked after that. Just didn't ever go back. Read science fiction and. Like I said, what science fiction gave me was this idea that the future would be different and that maybe, maybe it could be better in some ways. And I think that if you just listen to interviews and listen and, and talk to the people who are at the head of some of the most innovative companies uh, in, in the world and in the United States right now, one through line you see is that maybe not all of them, but a surprising number of them were science fiction readers growing up as kids. And they spent a lot of time as a result just sort of imagining the future and imagining that it would be different. And I think I think that exercise, just being forced, being but being drawn into that kind of imagination uh, uh, of, of a world that is different than the one we live in now and different because people have invented things. Because people have reorganized, uh, you know, sort of politics because because of whatever it is, but a world that is different because the future will be different. That is an exercise that we need more people to sort of like, like to engage in. And when people do it, I think the, the results, I frankly think that even pessimistic science fiction, reading pessimistic science fiction is better than reading none at all. Because, again, it just it just constantly hammers home this idea. The future will be different. It's not a steady state. We the progress or maybe anti-progress can be made. I think it certainly matters on that sort of doer elite level where you do have all these entrepreneurs, Silicon Valley folks who obviously were really inspired by science fiction. Also, I think it's just important for for everybody else. And I just can't imagine if people got more of that. Not only I think they would they be a bit more resilient to sort of the, the super negativity, it would just it would just, you know, create more dreamers among people about what if what future can be. Not utopia, but better. I'll take better. I'll take better as well. And I, I think that storytellers have a big role to play in that. And I think that anybody who creates images, who is a, a an imaginer for the popular consciousness, um, has some influence here. Because, like I said, uh, you know, people... People call to mind what they have seen before, and people operate based on the 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 sort of the the ideas that have been handed to them. And so, I certainly would like to see more of those stories. And I would also just like to say that, like, if you're a person who tells stories and who makes images and who tries to sort of worm your way into the public consciousness, obviously you can do it through fear. But wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't you feel? Wouldn't you feel a little more proud of yourself if you could do it through through hope and through making people think that maybe there's something wonderful coming? Star Trek, Star Wars, which is the capitalist show, which is the communist show? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, uh, like Star Trek The Next Generation's pilot episode is about how, like, basically energy capitalism is inherently bad. 
right? And you have the the Ferengi or the super capitalists to say it's really hard to make like a strong like Star Trek is a capitalist uh, like a pro capitalist show argument. Maybe you get a little bit into that with some of the Deep Space Nine stuff uh, later, but even there, that's mostly just sort of about political conflict. Um, is does that mean that Star Wars is about is is about is, is the pro-capitalist show? I don't know. I mean, people do seem to have jobs and buy and sell stuff and and make things, though. I guess I have to go with with Star Wars just because, you know, you can buy droids when you need help on your farm. So, listen, I, I, uh, you're I, locked in. I, I can never change that answer. <laughs> Peter, uh, wonderful stuff. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. 